0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all Before we begin, two quick announcements. First, if you haven't yet filled out the Unchained survey, this is the last week you can fill it out and enter to win a BTC candle, which is scented with Satoshi Wood, Musk Musk, Tulip Bulbs, and Finite Minerals. Head to SurveyMonkey.com slash r slash Unchained 2021 to fill out the survey by end of day, Friday, October 8th. We will announce the winners in next week's show. Again, the survey is at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2021. You can also find the link in the show notes. Second, as I mentioned earlier, I'm now writing a blog on Medium. This week, I have a post-up on my interview with today's guests, Collins Belton and Greg Exophalis. It was such an epic discussion that I felt it was worth calling out some of the highlights and linking to some of the news we discussed. Head to medium.com slash at Shin to check out the post and share it with your friends. Again, the URL is medium.com slash at Laura Shin, and be sure to follow me there. And now on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. This is, the, this is the October 5th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, or any of your favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. The Nodal Cash app makes earning crypto on your smartphone as easy as turning on your Bluetooth. Nodal Cash is private, secure, and available on iOS and Android. Visit nodal.io slash cash. That's nodal.io slash cash to start earning. Today's guest is Greg X. Avalis, general counsel at Multicoin, and Collins Belton, founding partner at Brookwood PC. Welcome, Greg and Collins.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Laura.
0: So we are recording on Friday, October 1st, and yesterday was the last day of the SEC and CFTC's fiscal year. And I think a lot of lawyers in this space and I also were expecting that there might be some enforcement actions. And there were, but they were kind of small and not like super worth diving into uh, in a big way we could touch on them. But I'm curious, Greg and Collins, if you have an opinion as to why we didn't see any big enforcement actions from these regulators.
1: Well, I think from from my perspective, I mean, the the federal government is typically pretty good about keeping a a close lid on enforcement actions as they're going on, and in particular, where they stand. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear about information sweeps or or, or things will, will leak out, but it's typically not in the interest of Parties who are being investigated or from, for the prosecutors themselves to, uh, to, to have things come out in the open. Um, and obviously there are a lot of really complex issues that don't necessarily always fit neatly into a calendar. Uh, I think, yeah, little surprise that the closest thing we had to, uh, a, a major crypto action or settlement was a relatively de uh, settlement with Kraken regarding their margin trading program. As well as a handful of actions that appeared to be only tangentially related to crypto, uh, from from the CFTC, so a little surprising.
2: It's interesting you say that too, Greg, because I think one of the other things that um, you know we maybe don't appreciate as lawyers in the space too is that you know there was some movement. One, I think, on the DMM and DMG case. Um, I, I think for a lot of us in crypto, we didn't view that as that impactful because the view was that's not really, you know, DeFi. But at the same time, I think, you know, maybe there's an internal view that that's setting, you know, some major precedent for them potentially being able to pursue DeFi. And then I think, you know, the other interesting thing, which, you know, has obviously been in the news and we probably couldn't talk about specifics here given client confidentiality, but just generally speaking, I think it's pretty well known that there's been, you know, a, a slew of investigative kind of requests. Um, and not necessarily subpoenas, but just, Hey, we're looking into this space, and I do think that that may, uh, you know, be a bit more of a blitz than what people appreciate. Um, so perhaps it's just that this year a lot of the attention was more privately focused rather than publicly focused. Is at least one theory I had.
0: And Nick Collins, just um, to make sure all the listeners are on the same page, um, tell us what the DMM and DMG cases were.
2: Oh sure. So the, the DMM and DMG cases, I think were. I think that it stood for Decentralized Money Management or something. That was the ticker for the two tokens. And it essentially was um, you know, ostensibly promoting itself as kind of like a yield farming, yield aggregation play. So for those that are kind of familiar with DeFi, you may be aware of that. But for those that aren't, in very, very simple terms, they were essentially telling people that they had a programmatic way for people to deposit money and then have it uh, be essentially managed on a non-custodial basis in order to generate returns. Um, that obviously raises... Questions generally in, in the legal industry, but in particular, uh, the issue here was that one, these folks were not actually using, you know, programmatic enforcement or any type of non-custodial mechanism. They were, you know, just committing fraud, taking folks money and then managing it themselves. And then secondly, they actually weren't actually managing that. Um, but the important or potentially important thing is that at least the SEC framed it as, Hey, this is a DeFi offering and we're going after it because we think the tokens themselves are securities. One is an equity security. One has a note under that Reeves analysis. I know we talked about that a few weeks ago and we'll get into that. Um, and then they also layered in the, in the fact that there was fraud, um, and or, um, you know, some type of deception. So that latter part is what I think was really material. But the former part was really important because it suggested, you know, two really important things. One, they're obviously looking at what they think is DeFi. And two, they're now looking at securities that go beyond just the Howey test. I think that was the first or maybe second time we saw in a settlement or an enforcement action where they explicitly referenced Reeve's. Greg, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was the first or second time in a formal order for digital assets where they uh, referenced it.
1: I think that's right. Uh, it, it had previously been discussed in at least one of the trio of uh, no action letters that came out in 2019. I think it may have been Pocketful of Quarters, uh, had a, a potentially a Reeves discussion, um, or Turnkey. It was one of the two. But yeah, I, I think it, it's re- reflective of our two definitions of decentralized in name only. Uh, this was uh, an example where I think a lot of, of, of people in the space – Pointed at those a- that action and said, "Well, this is not really DeFi. It's it's this is decentralized in name only. In that they are uh, literally just putting decentralized on the name, whereas that same term of Dino uh, was used again in, in congressional hearings. I think a couple of weeks ago to refer, and I think perhaps by a couple of folks, including Chair Gensler, to refer to decentralized projects." that perhaps vary on some gradation of, of actual decentralization, but um, you know, he taking the perspective that these were not really decentralized in significant material ways.
0: Yeah, and I think for the DMM and DMG cases, that's those are the ones, as you said, they were called uh, decentralized in name only, but I noticed that SEC commissioner has her purse also called them that. And um, I don't know if she coined the phrase or not, but clearly there is at least somebody at a high level in the SEC who makes a difference between projects like that versus ones that are legitimately either decentralized or trying to be. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what her view is on that. So we've mentioned this Reeves case a few times, and I just want to make sure people understand what that is and why that's significant. As you said, this was brought up in the context as another way to you know, look at this question of whether or not a token is a security. So uh, after the Howey test, so can you give us a sense of what that case says and then how it would apply here?
1: Ernst & Young versus Reeves, <laughs> I should say. Reeves versus Ernst & Young, I should say. A uh, Supreme Court case from, uh, I think, 1990 uh, that addressed sort of a fundamental issue of whether or not a note is a security. And to put some context in that, there are a number of federal securities laws. Uh, the the three that we probably think most about when we're talking about it, is a, a what is the definition of a security would be the 1933 Act, the Securities Act, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and the Investment Company Act of 1940, together with the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. The 33 and 34 acts have fundamentally the same definition of security, and it lists out a litany of of different types, from the standard stuff like equity to the the more flexible definitions like investment contracts that everyone in the crypto space is very familiar with, thanks to the Howie Howey test, which uh, which, which is how courts will interpret whether uh a, a particular scheme is an investment contract. Reeves takes a look at a different. Uh, set of that definition, which is notes, and in some cases, one some might try and also uh, apply it to evidence of indebtedness, which are codified as types of securities. And there's a, a an explicit presumption that a note is a security unless it fits certain families of notes that are known to be com- more commercial in nature. Than, than, than investment in nature. So, in in the Reeves case, the the court set out uh, a slew of categories. I think it was seven or eight categories that were called families of uh, of, of commercial arrangements. And if your specific instrument, your 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 note, was within that those uh, seven families of commercial non security notes, they would not be deemed to be a security. For ones that were not clearly within those seven families, the court established a test that looked at four different categories on a balancing test. So in in Howie, it's three or four, depending on how you want to look at the definition, three or four prongs, and all of them must be satisfied to be a security. Whereas in Reeves, it's a balancing test. It's not quite as algorithmic. Uh, and those things, those, those uh, factors that you look at are the motivation of the seller and the buyer in the transaction. Is it commercial in nature? Is it investment in nature? The plan of distribution of the instrument, is it being broadly distributed to the public uh, or or is it more specific and and bilateral or closely uh, distributed? The reasonable expectations of the investing public, would people think of it as a security? And the presence of an alternative regulatory regime, which is probably the most important one that, uh, that we look at in a lot of cases, uh, for, for the crypto community is, is there an alternative regulatory regime that applies that would make something that might otherwise be a, a note or, or a security note, rather, I should say, into something that would be viewed as a non-security?
0: And so what do you think the SEC is doing by now applying Reeves a few times here? Like if you're kind of reading the tea leaves, what would you say is maybe the next evolution in their application of existing case law, I guess it is, to the crypto space?
1: Well, I think that, you know, and I'll let Collins weigh in here, but I I think, you know, we've looked at where they're applying it. And it's often been in these lending type of programs where we've also seen action on the state level. And while the initial actions uh, that were, were targeted at BlockFi from New Jersey and, and Alabama and Texas and Kentucky or Vermont, I can't recall which, uh, a lot of that focused on Howie, But uh, a few of the states, particularly Texas, also referenced Reeves. And I think some of the conversation around it targets Reeves in no small part because uh, some of these relationships do look a little bit more like a debt relationship than an investment into uh, an enterprise. So uh, I don't know, Collins, if you want to chime in on that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree. I think where I'm expecting to see it most applied or most trotted out is going to be in the context of the type of lending or potentially, I wouldn't call it necessarily rehypothecation, but, um, rehypothecation like activities. I think those are probably the most prominent areas where they'll look to raise it in the DeFi context. Now, obviously for, you know, centralized entities, um, and it goes, you know, to a point that you raised, Laura, I think it's in some ways sometimes easier to make that argument um, for uh, from at least the government's perspective, as I view it, because it's a lot easier to say, hey, you've got somebody who's taking in this capital who may either be managing it or at least be, you know, subjecting that capital to whatever other downstream flows are in their business. And, you know, like Greg was talking about the 33 Act, the 34 Act, the 40 Acts, all of those are, you know, largely predicated on the existence of intermediaries and how we either want to constrain their behavior or prescribe some type of behavior that they should be uh, taking. And so when you've got those traditional actors, I think, you know, mapping that framework on is a little bit easier for the same reason. I think you start to see why the distinctions that folks like Hester and some in the crypto community want to make between kind of a a truly decentralized protocol versus a a CD5 protocol or a semi-centralized protocol is really material. Because in the absence of those intermediaries, some of the questions and the natures of the questions potentially change, and maybe normatively they should, is what I think a lot of people want to argue on the policy side.
0: Okay, so let's actually just focus the next part of the discussion on things that are obviously centralized, which would be lending products from companies like BlockFi or Celsius, or this proposed uh, product from Coinbase, called Coinbase lend which they ended up deciding not to pursue because the SEC threatened to sue them if they did. So when you look at those what's your opinion do those look like securities to you according to um you know the this precedent that that we've discussed here or would you say it looks like something different in um maybe is not a security?
2: So I, I'm going to preface this just by saying, um, I, I did, I previously worked with some of the folks. So I, I, I can't you know necessarily speak on their particular business models, but I, I guess I, I would generally say, I think that if there is an argument on the securities law side of things, it's not fruitful from my perspective to focus on the notes or certificate of indebtedness or investment contract analysis. I think what, and I think my, my public position has generally been shoehorning in, these assets into those tests is not the appropriate way to do so. At the same time, you know, I'm happy to concede, particularly with some of the arrangements that I've seen and not with these three particular companies, but others that I've you know, talked to over the years or seen in their business models. I'll definitely concede that I think some of these models will almost certainly constitute securities, but not because they are an evidence of indebtedness to a company or not because it's a note like investment that traditionally falls in those categories. And I don't think it even is one of these things where they're necessarily managing people's money in the way that we would expect an equity contract. I think the more appropriate way, and and, and this is where I, I really struggle with the SEC's approach right now, is to say, look, we've got, like Greg said, a litany of definitions here. I mean, it's like 30 or 40 definitions, two of which are things like participation in a profit sharing scheme or things like an asset backed security or a bond. Those three categories are much more appropriate to discuss. And, you know, participation in a profit sharing scheme have sometimes relied on the Howey test. Which is why I think that it shows why treating those as equity instruments is probably not the right move. But I would say it's a harder argument to say something like a central entity issuing you a receipt and that entitles you to some coupon payment in the future doesn't look like a bond or doesn't look like some type of asset backed security. But that's going to require that they build out the jurisprudence and the case law. And I think that's important for us to push because if we're saying, Hey, we want guidance, we want clarity. Where are the lines? What are we looking to do? Them saying, Hey, we're going to shoehorn it into this test that doesn't really fit either of these parameters, but you guys should just figure it out is not appropriate, especially if you've got a large institution that's looking to follow our laws, that's registered publicly, that's reaching out to them. At a certain point, you might have to say, look, it's, it's incumbent on us as the rulemaker. We have rulemaking authority to start expanding our previous guidance and start applying, you know, our, our, our frameworks to existing definitions. So that, that's generally my perspective there, without necessarily taking a view on any of those three products.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm sort of in the same boat with Collins as I've done a little work in the space in the past, uh, so I don't want to go too deep on specifics. At the same time, one one thing that I think it's worthwhile to note is this isn't the only scheme out there. Uh, crypto isn't the only industry that has relationships like this. For example, uh, you know within The investable asset market, you have securities lending programs that are operated by broker dealers and you have a commodity rehypothecation that's operated by a number of commodity warehouse storage facilities where you do have, you know, custodians who are rehypothecating and utilizing underlying assets outside of a bank framework. And outside of a securities uh framework. And I think one of the things that that you do look at there, and, and perhaps it is returning it to Reeves, is uh what what's basically the purpose of the relationship? Does it look like a commercial relationship or does it look like a uh an investment relationship? And it's a nice reminder that all of these uh all of these lending programs are not created and structured in the same way. So we've got two. Two prominent, uh, programs from reasonably well regulated U.S. exchanges. Coinbase proposed their lend product. Uh, Gemini and Genesis trading have the earn facility that is, uh, is actually a, a situation where Gemini customers lend to Genesis, uh, and it's facilitated by, by Gemini. But those are, are programs that you could make an argument is a, add on to a relationship that is principally commercial in nature, the custodial relationship, uh, the exchange business relationship that was pre-existing. And this starts to look a little bit more like securities lending or commodities rehypothecation. It's a little different when the entire purpose of the scheme and the arrangement is to facilitate this interest bearing account. Um, so I, I think there are some distinctions which may create some nuance, but uh, I otherwise agree with Collins that it's not apples to apples when we're when we're trying to look at what these products should be weighed at uh, against versus something like an ICO, where I think Howie is 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 really probably a, a pretty appropriate court doctrine to look for.
0: And then would you agree with Collins and and correct me, Collins, if I. And don't summarize your position accurately, but it seems like you were saying that you felt that there should just be new legislation to deal with these new types of products that maybe aren't covered by existing regulation.
2: Well, well, no, not even necessarily new legislation. Like like the definitions that I described to you are are already included in the Securities Act and the Exchange Act. The reason why the SEC prefers to default to an investment contract or a note is that there's established case law. Um, and there, there are two reasons why that's important. One, there's a roadmap for them to follow. Um, they can reuse prior work and and that really does matter for lawyers. Like we don't, you know, aim to recreate the wheel every time. But the second is that extending case law or getting new case law can be a bit of a risky business, particularly for a regulatory body, because if they are wrong, then it establishes precedent that many, many other people in the industry may want to follow. And it may, you know, incentivize behavior that they may want to dissuade. Now, obviously, there's a question as to whether they should, you know, want to dissuade behavior that a judicial body has determined is legal. But regardless, you know, administrative bodies are still political organs and they are impacted by both political realities, but also just administrative priorities. So I think that it's not necessarily promulgating new laws. I certainly think we should be considering that in some areas. But to be frank, for a lot of the securities law matters, I don't necessarily think think that's needed. Um, and this is kind of important. And, and I'm, again, this is, I'm assuming we're still all focused on the centralized components here because yeah. I think in the decentralized context, it's a bit different. But one of the things that we've been talking about, and it really frustrates me that it's, it's not more publicly known, is that a lot of these exchanges, I don't think their problem is, hey, these are securities and we like we don't want to offer securities. For the most part, in practice, for the end user, and even for the exchanges for most of management other than the compliance function, it's not really gonna be a huge difference for them whether they're issuing like this asset from a BD entity or a money transmitter. They're gonna have very similar requirements in terms of customer identification. Now, yes, there are other obligations that will apply to a securities entity that may not apply to a money transmitter. But at the end of the day, for the most part, your customers that they're not really exposed to that. And maybe a little bit more data collection. And even internally, most of the stakeholders aren't exposed to that. It's just, you know, additional compliance costs. So what frustrates me is that Coinbase has a broker dealer. Um, and as does do many other U.S. entities, the reason why they can't offer these products right now is not because they're intransigent and don't want to like offer any security. Like for them it would be the same thing at the end of the day, right? Like I come to Coinbase or you just redirect me to Coinbase securities. I sign up, same account. You have the same information. It's not going to be a huge difference to me either way. Um, And then I can get my Lend product. The reason why they can't is actually because the SEC also won't allow FINRA to approve crypto custodians as BDs. So we have broker dealers that are in the crypto business, but none or at least none that are currently active that I'm aware of as of this month that are allowed to essentially... Fully satisfy a certain set of rules that apply to broker-dealers that custody securities, and so we're in this weird catch-22 where we have people that are saying, "Hey, I'm willing to register and be this, you know, regulated entity. Go ahead and regulate me." And I bought an entity; we're ready to go once you approve the license. And the SEC is saying, "Yeah, hold off. We're not sure, but also this is a security, so you need a securities entity." It, it's a very bizarre situation, and I think it's a very important point. Because I see so many people with these takes of, oh, these guys don't want to follow the law or something. And it's like Coinbase brought this broker dealer, I think in like 2019, with the expectation of being able to offer crypto securities. And it's just been almost three years with no approval. So I think it's a bit disingenuous when I hear Gary and many other folks saying, hey, come and talk to us. When it's like, hey, they haven't just talked to you. They bought a BD. They put it through the licensure process. And now they've just been waiting for two years. It's very disingenuous to put it like everyone's shooting from the hip because we're in tech or something like that.
1: And, and I think it wasn't even just one. I think I think they actually bought a couple of BDs. Yeah. <laughs> I think one it's a two a, or three. A yes. Yeah, I think it, it was two or three around all in 2018 or 2019. And I think it's it's been a significant point of frustration. You know, I, I'm not a broker dealer lawyer, but uh some of the BD lawyers in the space, uh, I think one, you know, remarked to me that she had something like 50 clients in the pipeline trying to get. The ball moved forward with, uh, with FINRA and the SEC, uh, which is not to say that there aren't some tough issues, but, uh, you know, when we, we look at the industry and the criticism of the industry that sometimes takes place, the level of intractability of this system to quickly adopt, uh, or adapt, I should say, to what's happening in the market, uh, it's not just on, on the companies that are building. it's also in the need to have a regulatory environment that responsibly promotes responsible innovation.
0: Yeah, actually, just listening to you guys talk, it made me think, and this is just me guessing, I have done no reporting into this other than just talking to crypto lawyers. I, I mean, I haven't spoken to anyone at the SEC or anything like that. But just listening to this, it makes me think, Oh, it's probably just they haven't figured out how they want to regulate the space. And so they're just trying to keep people in a holding pattern. What, what do you think of that theory? <laughs>
2: I, I mean, I think that I think it's right, but that I mean, that's problematic when you're, you know, publicly saying to people come in or register and do it the right way. People go to do it and you say, okay, we'll get back to you in three to five years. That that's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not reasonable. And so that's why it's like, it's extremely frustrating sometimes to see some of the statements publicly as though everyone in crypto is running around dodging clients. And I, I can definitely, you know, uh, kind of co-sign what Craig has said. I mean, I, two years ago, I knew somebody saying that and maybe it's the same person and they had, you know, 20 or 30 people waiting. So I can only imagine that the list has grown. I've talked to FINRA about this issue. I've had people talk to the sec that it's not like it's, it's, it's strange when you talk to them and there's almost like a, it's almost like a sympathetic recognition, like, Hey, we get it. We're working really hard. I, I would appreciate that if, but for the fact that you, you know, you turn on the news and you've got somebody saying, Hey, these guys don't want to comply. And it's like, what. What's going on? And, and let's not, let's not, you know, understate the reality here. Uh, a significant swath of crypto actors are probably not great actors and we should be cleaning these folks up. But that's the thing, right? If we were focused on them, we could do that. And which, you know, what I guess I'll end my little mini rant here, which by saying it, it's funny because sometimes I see people say like, oh, like 90% or 95% of these are valueless. Well, well first of all, you know, I, I don't think the hit rate in regular startup. Is that much higher, but secondly, you know, at this point, there's thirty thousand plus companies. That's still three thousand companies that are valid. Like th- that's that's a huge amount of companies with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people working for them. It's no longer like, oh, hey, you've got twelve legitimate actors and fifty million bad actors. It's like even if you want to take the most draconian, you know, ninety five percent, ninety nine percent of people are bad actors. That's still hundreds of companies, almost as much as the Fortune five hundred. So at this point, I think it's It's a little like I said, it's frustrating to have the condescension when people are acting in good faith, and there's a wide swath of actors that are trying to make that outreach.
1: I was just going to say, Laura, uh first off, you know completely agree with what Colin said and, and there is a degree of frustration and uh not not just with the slow progress but also the narrative that's being created around it. Um, what I don't want us to lose sight of is there also are a lot of people who are working very hard. Uh, on both the political side as well as on the regulatory side, people working within these regulatory bodies were taking great pains to actually understand and and try. The difference is that that doesn't always lead to policy or, or affirmative movement, uh, that, that actually allows innovation to occur here in the U.S. So one of our continuing themes of concern over the course of 2021 is is this the year that more and more of crypto gets pushed, uh, outside of the U.S., both on a development side and also on a market side? Um, the number of opportunities for participation in this exciting new ecosystem, uh, gets smaller and smaller. Um, you know, Collins can probably speak better to, uh, to, to what we saw yesterday with geo blocking. And I know we're still on CFI, but. Uh, when we get to, T- to DeFi, talking about what's going on with geo blocking of US IPs. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a shame. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we work to, uh, elevate the, the parties in, in the regulatory apparatus or the political apparatus who are working to, again, try and promote res- reasonable and responsible regulation and, and to be able to foster, um, a, a crypto ecosystem here in the US.
0: Yeah. So why don't we discuss DeFi actually momentarily, because we're already halfway through the show. Um, but first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With Nodal Cash, you can earn crypto on your mobile device for free with no hardware to purchase. You just download the Nodal Cash app, turn on your Bluetooth and start earning. Nodal Cash is private, secure and easy to earn. Whether you're on the go, stuck in traffic or even while you're sleeping. You can even repurpose your old smartphones to earn Nodal Cash. Visit nodle.com to get started, or go directly to nodal.io slash cash. That's nodleio dot slash cash. Join the Citizen Network to earn crypto on your smartphone 24-7. Or if you're already a Nodal Cash app user, make sure you follow their Twitter at Nodal Network and join their Telegram at Nodal Community. For earning tips and exclusive giveaways with over 10 million users crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies download the crypto.com app now and get 25 dollars with the code laura if you're a hodler crypto.com earn pays industry leading interest rates on over 30 coins including bitcoin at up to 8.5 percent interest and up to 14 percent interest on your stable coins When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code Laura, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Greg and Collins. So there's so much more to be said, even just about the centralized crypto world. But let's talk about DeFi because I feel like that's really probably the major issue here. Um, what would you say is, uh, th- so in a way, I almost feel like a lot of this discussion is subtext for what's going on in DeFi. Like w- when you look at what's happening with the regulators and where things are going, what do you think is going to be the regulatory stance toward DeFi?
2: I, I can start or Greg, do you want to start since I I, I talked a lot in the last question and, and I can concede
1: the ground. No, go first. ahead,
0: Collins, because I know you have opinions on this.
1: No, um, I think my, well, I think, just, uh, my one my one liner response is not great, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually long term, I actually am
2: more optimistic than I think one. Most people probably are to my public posting probably suggests um, And, and I, I guess I'll preface this all by saying, I, and sometimes I think people think that I'm like despondent, but it's really more so that I think we have a uh, flawed, I mean, incredibly flawed. I mean, this is coming from me, like my family's history is mired in the flaws of our country. So I'm no <laughs> apologist for American history. But while it's flawed, I think we have one of the best arguments for constantly aiming to hold truth to power. And that's because we've structured a system that ostensibly gives the people as much power as you might see in the modern world. Now, that's probably more loaded despite the amount of caveats I tried to add here. But I think I prepped what I'm about to say with that just because I think there's this view in crypto like all governments are bunk. We've got to burn everything. Nothing will ever get done. I'm I'm actually not that guy. And so for most people I think I'm like a cyberpunk, I may lose some, some bona fides with them. <laughs> I genuinely think society has been like a pretty good improvement on the human condition. And I think American society, despite its flaws, has been a pretty good upgrade in large part because we've had this strong re- respect for privacy rights and freedom of expression. And so right now we do have a lot of people pushing back. There's a, a combination there a confluence of people that are objectively worried the old world is changing on them. It, it seems crazy and novel. There is real criticism and concern, like you've got a bunch of people flipping God knows what and people you know, running around laughing at people to stay poor, probably not a great look. Um, and there's a host of other things that really are causing anxieties about the rise of crypto. And I think that's translating into our policy bodies. But we're also starting to see, like, I think, I, I think, Greg, you, you raised this. We're starting to see some of the politicians saying, all right, hold on, hold on. Maybe we don't have to have a knee jerk on this. Part of that's because crypto people are starting to wield their political influence. But part of it is because I think some of these folks like Ron Wyden and other people were, were around for the dawn of the internet. And they said, look, this was really important to us. Not only did it help boost our economy, it significantly, you know, in large part helped with our domestic and foreign policy. Um, you know, spreading our foreign policy. Um, and I think in crypto, we're starting to see some people recognize the same things. And so this is a long winded way of saying, immediately in the near term yeah there's going to be a lot of friction particularly on derivatives lending those types of things because they are both the most disruptive to the traditional system and can bring the most gain to people which means it can displace some of the, the traditional incumbents but they do objectively represent some of the more dangerous aspects of things too because as we've seen today right like if you take society general is now you know putting in uh, uh assets to be collateralized on MakerDAO. It's huge. It's fantastic. It's like something that we've all been waiting to see for a while even as like a defi maximalist, love to see defi being able to be bridged into the real life. That said, you can imagine in the future where you've got that or something like that built on top of Spell and then those things are being lent out on something like Sushi's Bento Box and then Bento Box is being used with cream and somewhere downstream something breaks and suddenly some pension fund is out $30 million because Society Generale invested in something. Now, this isn't to scare them off from their maker investment. That's not possible today. This is you know years in the making. But I think all of those things are now at the fore where people are saying, look, we've got to address this. But I'm optimistic that the long-term view is going to be a lot of pain. And ultimately, just like the internet, decentralized tech will not be stopped. And disruptive technology traditionally shapes or forces society to shape itself around it versus the other way around. So to me... This was always coming. You know, in twenty eighteen I moved my stuff from centralized exchanges. In twenty nineteen, I largely tried to stop using stable coins with many options. Now we've got decentralized options. I think people need to prepare for the next two to three years before people realize hey, there's a world where, at least in America, I think America in particular, but generally across the world, we've got a unique governmental body that respects privacy rights, that respects freedom of expression. And this technology really helps to codify that. If we do it right. We can actually leverage it to continue to spread a lot of our ideals, which is probably important in a time where like your position as a hegemon is consistently under assault. So I think it's a long winded way of saying it's going to be painful in the short term, but I'm not pessimistic that truly decentralized protocols won't have a lasting position in American and global society long term.
0: Okay, so Greg, give your response and also let's bring up this geofencing issue because this is maybe some of the short-term pain that Collins mentioned.
1: Yeah, no, and first I I want to echo what Collins said about the respect for privacy. I know the narrative over the course of the last couple of months uh starting with with the infrastructure bill and uh Abe Sutherland has has had a lot of really great thought leadership he's put out about uh 6500i which is The subsection that treats crypto like cash for uh, transaction reporting requirements uh, and filing forms eighty three hundred with the IRS for every transaction over ten thousand dollars, despite the fact that our in the post Bank Secrecy Act environment we do have what feels like a a bit of a strangulation of financial privacy, which is you know one of the the elements that that DeFi. Uh, and, and crypto in general hopes to, uh, to ensure for its users. But at the same time, the U.S. government does still have a, a great history of, of respecting individual privacy, or at least aspiring to respect it. And even if we look at the way encryption is viewed around the globe, the U.S. is still a pretty darn good actor at respecting the right to encryption, which is in an information era probably one of the most important rights we can have. So I, I do want to echo that. I think that's a, a, a very great point. I think that, you know, Collins has talked about it recently. Uh, I know it's the, the the tension that I usually point to most in trying to figure out how DeFi grows in America is when you have a regulatory system that's focused on intermediaries not not just because that they're the best position to be regulated but because they are regulated because they are in the best position to oversee and to bring order to a market it is very difficult for a regulatory infrastructure that has been built up over the course of in in some instances basically a century for it to move and adapt to a technology that uh you know, seeks to build systems without intermediaries. So we've seen, you know, regulation adopt, uh, adapt rather very quickly or reasonably quickly to the internet. Uh, but this is a, another step beyond that, but it's also not a perfect step beyond that. And it gets to the geo blocking point is that DeFi doesn't exist in a, a vacuum. It is touched and, and entered, if you will, Typically through interfaces that, by definition, are are centrally managed, and I think that in the near term is where we likely see the most tension. If you're actually looking for uh, an enforcement precedent that directly touched some element of DeFi, the best one to look at is the the Coburn uh, enforcement action uh, for for Ether Delta. Where it was a decentralized exchange, uh, in the, in the, in the element that it had decentralized custody. The website never touched the assets themselves. At the same time, it served as an interface and it provided certain oracle functions and helped facilitate the matching. The SEC entered into a settlement order with the founder of Ether Delta, the operator of Ether Delta. That basically identified it as an ATS without identifying what the actual securities that were being transacted. But that's a, a separate gripe along the lines of the broker dealer arguments. But there the SEC uh, perhaps appropriately looked at, okay, there, there is a centralized portion of this that is controlled, that is administered. And even if the custodial portion is a decentralized thing that we either shouldn't be regulating, or that we don't really understand how best to regulate now, they can look at the interface and say, okay, we, we know pretty well how to regulate this. And so when we look at how DeFi operates now, there's, again, varying gradations of, of how decentralized it actually is on the protocol level, uh, whether or not there's still administration, whether or not there's effective control, how we consider governance tokens, how we consider multi-sigs, But there still are typically user interfaces. They aren't the only way to access these protocols. But for the normal retail user, uh, you're going to go to a, a website that's controlled by a central party that serves as a gate into this protocol. And the question really to me is when we're looking at, is there authority to regulate these interfaces? Are they Verizon or are they Ether Delta? Is it an infrastructure that isn't providing a unique and important function that is one where you identify it, not just as a party that's capable of being regulated, but a party that should be regulated? Is it serving certain surveillance functions that you can't just get out of the transparent nature of a blockchain environment? So I think the interfaces are, are where we're going to see a Uh, you know, I don't want to say battlefront because I hope it would be more collaborative than antagonistic. But I think that's where we're going to see most of the movement.
2: I'm going to say something controversial. I'm, I'm so glad you raised that. Generally, this always surprises people when I say it, I actually think most of those types of plays probably should be. Like in the long run, where I would expect this to go is you've got bona fide decentralized protocols, your Uniswaps, your whatever. Any Anyone can plug on top of it, just like anyone can plug on top of HTTPS or something else. The second you start building a business on top of that is when people are probably going to say, all right, well, maybe we are going to regulate you. And so the options are you either just become a business, or you say, okay, look, we don't think we need to be a business to offer that same functionality. Instead, we think, like you said, there's maybe a variety of folks that can provide an interface, any of which is interchangeable, and the sole purpose of which is just to provide access to this underlying protocol. In that world, I think it's a better policy argument or a better policy discussion to be saying, all right, maybe these six people, these all six of these people can't be in exchange for the same protocol. That This seems a bit strange. On the flip side, yes, if you're the only way that somebody can access a protocol, maybe you control back-end storage such that if you disappear Here, people can't withdraw their funds, or you have admin keys or keys that can, you know, take people's capital, you start to reintroduce the exact same reasons why we do have securities laws. You're becoming an intermediary. So for me, whenever I've talked to clients or something about that and they've tried to ask them, like, hey, you know, what should I be thinking about when we're designing this? You know, I'm always erring on the side of, hey, can you relinquish that control? Because if you don't, the more of this that you have, the more that you start to reintroduce the exact same reasons why we have the securities laws. And that's what they mean when they say substance over form. So and again, I feel like I'm on the on the on this podcast, like on Twitter, I'm like, ah, Gary, and here I'm like, yeah, SEC. But that's not really it. To me, I think what one of our colleagues has said is probably the most important thing for I think true DeFi maxis to really appreciate, which is the SEC is probably the best motivator of making something truly decentralized. Like if you want the best securities law argument, you legitimately have to be willing to say, look, like I don't get to own this entire stack. I don't get to own this entire experience. And unfortunately, a lot of devs, particularly Silicon Valley trained devs, but other devs, they don't like that. They don't want to relinquish control. They want to be able to control the front end experience. They want to be able to consistently, you know, capture value from other revenue streams But that's a business, like that's what running a business is. So I think in general, and we're starting to see this, so I think people are getting it. We're going to start to see people separate their protocol development teams versus some other type of commercial enterprise. That's the appropriate move in my mind. And I think the way that the SEC should kind of recognize that and maybe give a quid pro quo is say, okay, look. That's fine. And if the core issue that you all have had before that is, yes, but we think that maybe the people on the protocol side should be able to be incentivized with some of the assets that they've built without necessarily becoming some securities intermediary, but also the commercial entity that's driving value should be able to appreciate that. Then there's a safe harbor path there in my mind that says, okay, look, To the extent that this protocol team is not doing X, Y, and Z and certain things are disclosed, we're not going to treat that as security and we're not going to treat them as intermediaries. If you are going to do other things, commercial entity, you may still have obligations. But I think that's one path to... To at least allow for this bifurcation of roles, but still allow for incentive alignment around the underlying protocol. Because at the end of the day, that's most people's issues with like being able to separate the business and the protocol is them saying, well, how do we incentivize ongoing devs who don't necessarily want to be building a business, but may just be really interested in zero knowledge proofs or something like that. And I don't think we want to drive that innovation away. So we've got, um, you know, a, a path forward here. The, the other thing, Greg, that you mentioned, which is super interesting and, and something hopefully I think Laura's podcast is probably one of the better places to mention this is there is optimism that they do have a path forward to integrating technical data into disclosures versus traditional data. And I think the best example of that is there's a system, Laura, called the XBRL system. It's like extensible I forget whatever the last three things are. It's not like, hey, it's not like hey, they've read Greg's laughing because it's not like they made a supercomputer. But for like a decade, the SEC basically worked on a standard because, you know, for like 50, 60 years, we had all of these filings that were done on paper. And obviously computers got big and people, analysts in particular, were like, hey, these disclosures are becoming less helpful. Like you're, you're sending us 150 pages. No one's gonna read through all of this. We have computers now where a lot of this financial information and other disclosures can be standardized and made machine readable. Why don't you just make a standard and all the companies or anybody else should have to adhere to that? And then that way we no longer have to even look in the different places. We don't have to have people come up with their own disclosures. That's what I would expect for crypto. Instead of saying, hey, all of these things are securities, we might say to Hester Purse's point, okay, look, you don't want it to be a security. Here are the minimum things that we're going to require. And here are the things that are going to need to be surfaceable in the smart contract with the standard API call. If you're not going to do that, then you don't get the benefit of the safe harbor. You can still argue it's not a security, but if you want the safe harbor, your API needs to surface some key things. Is there an admin key, total supply, you know, inflation, whatever that is? That's, we have experience there. So I don't want us to continue to give the commission excuses like, Oh, we have no idea what we're doing. They've got examples and I like the commission for the good work that they do, but I do think we've got to start holding the fire under their feet to say, hold on there are some paths here. That that also means it's incumbent on us as an industry to come forward with some suggestions like this or some other things. But that's the other thing I did want to raise here.
1: So I I used to live a lot on Edgar because I would do a lot of registered product filings. Um, My my dear paralegal, Debbie Ferraro, actually was one of the testers on Edgar when they first introduced it. And, uh, you know, I think we, we would all have our frustrations with Edgar from time to time, and when XBRL was introduced, uh, you know, within the last decade, uh, probably about seven eight years ago, with the, the modernization uh, movement for for reporting filings, um, it, it was very clunky and hard to access. And really, the people who were taking advantage of it were quant funds uh, that that were pulling the data because it was it's little literally Excel coding of disclosure documents. But Collins is 100% right because the SEC maybe didn't have a product that was particularly useful when it was introduced, but they had the foresight to understand that data repositories are incredibly important. And in the future, they are going to be how we pull information and they oftentimes are going to be how we regulate markets because it's easier to see the flat surface of the market and analyze it and 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 pull it from a data and the beauty of blockchain is it's uh, particularly when you're looking at cryptocurrencies where everything exists on chain not not calling off chain resources it is a complete set of information and Collins is spot on uh, there are tools that can be applied to this industry to provide the type of surveillance and market integrity that we typically in the US regulatory infrastructure, look at those central intermediaries. Whereas in blockchain, you know, you do have a transaction record either on layer one or in some instances on a transparent layer two where you have the ability to see the market. And to be frank, while we haven't seen this emerge quite as much in the SEC, FinCEN has been all over this and the success of companies like Elliptic and Chainalysis is 100% driven by the same concept that you can regulate through data. You can you can investigate through data. You don't need Dragnet, the old Chicago sitcom, or, or I guess drama wasn't a sitcom, funny now. But uh, you, you don't necessarily need that. You have new tools. And these new tools are not just market opportunities. They're also regulatory opportunities.
0: Yeah. Well, so I have to say, I'm a little bit surprised that this is actually the direction you guys went when I asked you about regulation of DeFi. Because the way that I'm viewing this is that the regulators want to keep imposing that system where intermediaries are, you know, a big part and have a big role, and that that's who the regulators then regulate. And I actually feel like watching this that they, are kind of painting a broad brush and often lumping together projects that truly either want to decentralize or actually already are decentralized along with ones that either are centralized or just plain fraudulent. And I also feel even you know earlier when you guys were talking about how the US tends to respect privacy, you know, a lot of like for instance we saw with the infrastructure bill the crypto provision really uh, was <laughs> going to create a lot of honeypots for um, hackers who were interested in, you know, who is transacting in cryptocurrency. So in that regard, like, you know, I didn't feel that that, I mean, granted, I I recognize that a lot of Congress people do see the need to change the language in that bill. But still, the fact that it came out that way and that there was a strong push to regulate in that fashion does indicate that there's, uh, you know, a substantial segment of government that maybe doesn't really see um, the merits of decentralization or just doesn't believe that something can truly be decentralized. And so even, you know, I keep, I, you guys keep referencing uh, Commissioner Peirce's safe harbor proposal. And, you know, I think, for somebody who looks at the space and says, okay, there are projects that are legitimately trying to be decentralized or are already decentralized, then of course, something like what she proposed makes sense. But, you know, we haven't really seen the SEC take that up seriously, right? I mean, the fact that she's revised it is great for her and and for everybody who thinks about this space. But when you look at Chair Gensler and kind of some of the other commissioners or even over the CFTC, we don't necessarily see a lot of people saying, oh, yes, this is the way to go. Let's figure out how to adopt this. You know, let's get this in the pipeline. So um, I'm just curious, you know, am I just reading things wrong? Or do you feel like maybe because you want it to, <laughs> to, to look that way that you're maybe painting a rosier picture or... Or is it just that I'm looking to you short term, or or what?
2: No, no, I think I think you're right, um, and that's part of what I was saying. You know, I think the next two to three years, it's going to be a, it's a combination of, of, a, of a struggle and convincing folks, but also some, some pushback um, because, yeah, you're right. There's there's a broad brush brush here being painted, and for a while, I think a lot of the industry engaged in probably a bit more good faith than was appropriate. Um, not not I mean, you should never engage in bad faith, but I think I guess we assumed too much benevolence and interest on behalf of the government. And it's not that, I don't think they're not interested so much as, at first it's like, hey, this crypto thing, yeah, these people want to make a bunch of money. Then it became a serious thing and they still treated it that way. And then instead of ever engaging, it went from, hey, this isn't serious to you're going to destroy the financial system and you're criminals. And so it's like, well, hold on. How did it go from this is a joke to criminals? But yeah, you're right. Right now, I think there's definitely... More of a contingent, I'd say, I don't know, this is not a scientific number, you know, 70, 30, 75, 25 saying, oh, yes, you know, this is just inherently problematic. We need to reintroduce uh, you know, intermediaries. That's the way we protect people, et cetera. But like I said, you know, even six months ago, we didn't have as many of the folks in Congress actively talking about it as we did. We basically had, uh, I think it was. I, I hate referring to all these people by first name, like I know them, but I think it was, I think it was like Cynthia L- Lumnis, uh, Senator Lumnis, there we go. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cynthia and a few of the other uh, senators, which I'm, I only know by first name. I have no idea why. Um, and so as we start to see that roll out, one of the interesting things I've talked about, and this is obviously not, not a politics show, but I've talked a lot about with my friends is I am very interested to see if there's a political realignment that occurs here because I've long suspected that certain crypto people are definitely single-issue voters, and we're starting to see that, uh, you know, come out in some of the political expressions. But CT is also, you know, much of a, a, a an echo chamber. So I think it'll be interesting to see in these next, you know, midterm elections how much pandering there is to this group, and also how much that translates into political activity. Um, but I think if it does translate into something, you'll, you'll see a sea change almost overnight, um, as we saw with some of the infrastructure bills but now you're not crazy at all.
0: One last thing I wanted to add on this is that I feel like another trend that I'm seeing is that a lot of the pro crypto regulators are just leaving government and going to join different <laughs> crypto companies and I, I mean like it's almost like just looking at the a16z crypto regulatory team is like all these ex regulators and you know other people who uh, have spent a lot of time in DC. And then the people that are kind of negative on crypto, they're the ones who are staying in the regulator roles. So that's another trend that for me is kind of fascinating to watch. And I'm a little bit like, oh, where is this going to go? You know, because uh, all the people who've left and now work in the industry are saying, hey, we need new regulations and the old regulations <laughs> yeah. don't apply here and stuff like that. And then the people who are <laughs> yeah. still in DC are like, the, you know, the, 33 and 34 acts do apply here and the, you know, the Howie test and Reeves do apply here. So anyway, uh, just, it was just an interesting observation. So um, I think uh, uh one
1: one last, one last point on that is uh, I think, you know, there's an importance to the, the crypto communities. And I don't think there's a singular community, obviously, but the crypto communities to come together, whether it's collectively or, or, or in their own little segments, and understand that narrative matters. It's not just building a better product and it's not just donating money and it's not just being active on Twitter. Uh, a, a meme game is important, but that, that's not co- what's going to drive thing things. It's about creating the narrative on the policy level that makes people remember that it's not simply politically expedient to crack down but that there's a long-term vision for the benefit that this industry can provide the U.S. and the, the world community at large. And that's a difficult task. It's tough to build up a narrative. Uh, it's not something that isn't happening though. Uh, we've seen people shift when they see the opportunity and, and I go back to, to, and some would probably laugh at me at saying this, but 2013 or 2014, uh, I recall when Ben Losky at, at DFS mm-hmm. first addressed crypto in, in probably the late summer of 2013, he wanted to crush it because all he had done was read, you know, stories about Silk Road. And three weeks later, uh, you know, he, after actually investigating it, uh, you know, you can have your opinion on, on, on the bit license and how that turned out. But I do think he genuinely said, I, I want to build a framework to actually build responsible innovation in New York for, for crypto. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, as a native New Yorker, I still can't access a lot of services <laughs> because they, they can't get into the state. But it is reflective of the fact that with the appropriate view, he viewed it as an economic builder for New York and wanting to to build the right way. We should be working on the narrative. That story is also a nice reminder that the narrative is not the only thing. We also need the proper regulation or legislation.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing that that actually reminds me of is that a lot of people say that that bit license was kind of too early, right? That the technology and the industry hadn't really developed enough to truly understand what even should be regulated or how the space was going to look. And you know what's been interesting covering this the last few years is that the industry has complained a lot about not having clarity. And yet at the same time, I think in a way that that has given the industry a little bit of freedom. I understand it's a scary kind of freedom, but if you think about how Ethereum basically had an ICO, but then decentralized by the time the regulators were paying attention. (laughs) And so at that point, they, you know, kind of realized, okay, yeah, this is not a security anymore. I wonder, you know, so I don't know how long it's going to take for more clarity to come. Clearly, I think we all agree on this episode that the regulators are working on something and we probably are going to see more actions coming out of these regulators. But during that time, it's like you said, maybe this just gives motivation to more projects to decentralize and do it quickly. Because if that's the case, then I think a lot of them could kind of end up like Ethereum in the sense that, you know, as long as they decentralize by the time regulators really come in, then um, then it may be the case that regulators won't be able to do much. But I don't know. What What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think that, Timing is obviously extraordinarily important. I think you're right that I I would argue perhaps timing on the bit license in particular was perhaps not a question of 2014 versus 2018 versus 2021, but more so that the timing and the application of that type of a regulatory regime to companies that were six months old versus companies that were well financed uh you know well established well capitalized financial institutions um you know if you had for example a large regulatory framework in place for people developing silicon processors we wouldn't have Hewlett Packard because you can't easily develop a financial institution in a in a garage but frankly that's that's kind of how uh how crypto companies got their start It was a couple of people and and a little bit of seed funding.
0: All right. So for this next year, what are you going to be looking for? And um, why don't we just throw into this last question what you think is going to happen to stablecoins too?
1: Stablecoins are a good place to start. I think Uh, there was an article today, uh, again, when we're recording from the journal talking about how FSOC and the Biden administration uh, are, are looking to create a regulatory framework for stable coins. I think quite clearly this is an area where there's going to be a lot of focus in the next year. And it's, uh, you know, Collins mentioned earlier in the show, there obviously are a bunch of different types of stable coins. But if we look at in particular the, the fiat backed or, uh, in some cases, not quite fiat backed stable coins, Um, you know, that's going to be an area of significant focus and potentially, uh, near-term regulation. Probably not legislation, but, but probably regulation. And I think we'll see some clarity. I think we've already seen people, uh, address the, the investment company act issues in the space where, um, you know, USDC is now going to only hold uh, fiat and treasuries. And that's, that's Paxos's strategy. I would guess that's probably Gemini's strategy. And it's most, de- most decisively not Tether's strategy. Uh, I think we could see some action on that side. And that's when we're hearing people talk about money market funds. That's what we see. Uh, I think we could, if we get significant regulation on the securities law side rather than on the bank reg side for, for stable coins, I think one project that'll be interesting for people to look at is uh Rcoin, uh ARCoin, which was uh done by the the folks at California at ARCA, ARCA Labs, where they actually registered a money market fund that holds its shares entirely on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh and you actually can transfer these money market shares peer-to-peer uh through to whitelisted Ethereum network addresses. This is probably the, the biggest product that no one actually talks about because it doesn't have market traction, but it's real thought leadership in, as far as developing something and getting the SEC on board with an actual uh, tokenized product, registered product that really does live on a blockchain. And you could see uh, some circumstance where that becomes the not quite where stable coins go. But if we do see a lot of attack on, on the securities law front on these centralized stablecoin issuers, um, you know, I think our coin is, is something that might get talked about a little bit more.
2: Hmm. Yeah, answer. no, that, that's actually interesting. I, uh, I didn't know they had registered the m- money market shares on chain. Um, yeah, for me, I think, you know, the next year uh, I'm looking at a confluence of, I think a, a segregation between kind of these truly decentralized protocols, whether that's, you know, because they are protocols and, and made by folks that are known or anonymous or pseudonymous developers kind of building primitives and or, you know, potentially taking over previously centralized ones. To me, that's actually the, you know, the, the worst result from the regulator's perspective, because then it may just push things into the shadows. But that's definitely something and a trend that I'm expecting to see, um, particularly because DAOs are starting to, you know, get back into, Popularity, which personally I find very interesting, because it's like everyone tends to forget that the SEC like started their entire crusade with the Dow report. So like I personally like like in terms of like the idea behind Dows, I, I love them. Like I think people should be doing. I've been doing research on co op models and the like. But I think it is very weird that everyone is acting as they're like. The SEC is not about to show up next year with all of these DAOs because, to be honest, that's the thing that seems the most obvious to me, like even more so than stable coins and stuff, only because for years, basically that was like their demarcation line. It was like, okay, we gave you the DAO report and everything after this, like we're, you're not necessarily blessed or grandfathered in, but we're not going to focus on you as much. And then it's like three or four years later, everyone was like, oh, okay it's been a while, why don't we just start doing DAOs again? So I think that's probably the area where we'll probably see a lot more activity. What's interesting is I think what will also bring them into the fore is I'm expecting one of the first, if not more than one, major political DAOs to become relevant. So I think that's going to end up kind of like, kind of smashing into each other. And it's going to be one of the major securities law issues to, to, to see next year. And then in terms of stable coins, yeah, I mean, I think, there's going to be a lot of focus here. For me personally, I've, I've had kind of a laser focused on things like, you know, LUSD, RI, and UST for the past, you know, almost a year and a half since ESD kind of uh, empty set dollar. One of the first algorithmic stablecoin experiments kind of kicked off the imagination of the industry to see if it could be done. Um, and I think long term, that's kind of important, you um, I, I maybe undermine my prior rant in terms of like American hegemony and the like, but being frank, if you're trying to use a global permissionless network, at least if I'm not American, I don't want to have to rely on something that's subject to like another country's random, you know, uh, domestic and foreign policy it wouldn't leave me feeling great. It's like as an American, it's great if like everyone's, you know, denominated in USDC, but long term, if you're saying, hey, we're building this network that's almost a layer on top of the real world that everyone should have access to, you probably want a credibly neutral, stable currency that you know not only should not be uh, the U.S. dollar, you also probably shouldn't be backed by it or pegged to it maybe isn't necessarily as problematic, but if you're backed by it or you're targeting it, you're always necessarily susceptible to it. So while I think what's interesting right now is the U.S. is actually focused more on curtailing it At some point, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually flip on that and instead we try to make it such that only U.S. dollar denominated stablecoin things get priority. I just, you know, and this is less me as like the crypto anarchist lawyer, but more like if I'm going to be a real politic like citizen of the world and we still live in the nation state system, then, yeah, if my government's going to like be in this great power war, I want them to kind of do it right. And so for me, I would expect at some point somebody says, hey, guys, this is spreading our foreign policy with very little expenditure on our part and very little liability. If it goes wrong, why don't we kind of let's see what happens? I, I not, don't just unleash the US dollar on the rest of the world as a weapon, but admittedly we've kind of done that before. So it's one of those things where it's like, I don't approve of it from the humanitarian view, but if you're going to do it, I would expect at some point somebody's going to be a realist and say, hold on, if we're going to allow this, why don't we allow it in the way that best benefits us. So I think stable coins are going to be interesting. I I, There's going to be a crackdown, but I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets interesting.
1: Yeah. And Collins, on that point, I mean, I think it's also not, if we're going to allow it, if we accept that this is going to happen in some form, why would you not want to have the dollarization of of crypto if you're a policymaker? And this goes to the narratives. It's, it's, it's built in and, uh, as it turns out to, you know, depending on votes in the next couple of weeks, we're going to need some people buying some U S treasuries. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's utterly it's bizarre to in. me. It's yeah. utterly. Bizarre. And like I said, I get
2: it. If you're like one of the people that don't have the economic perspective that dollar hegemony is good, but as a general matter, our policymakers do have that perspective. So for me, it, it's, it's a bizarre situation to say, okay, our standard. Uh, you know, way of operation is yes, we want the dollar to generally dominate in every market it possibly can. Here's an emerging financial market that may grow to dominate all financial markets. Let's do our damnedest to stop the dollar from predominating when it has no competition. It, I, I've never, I, and I, I understand what's happening. It's really just like the policymakers aren't, you know, engaged with the regulators right now because it's not a priority, but I, it would be a shame if we do lose out and the nation state system persists. And it's just another nation that has the, the hegemony because then it's like, well, great. We didn't undermine the hege- hegemonic system. We just gave it away to someone else.
1: Yeah. Particularly because the, the, the bank run concept. I mean, if you're talk, talking about stable, stable coins that have reserves that are held in regulated financial institutions, whether in, in deposit or custody accounts uh, and, and you're looking at treasuries as the rest of the portfolio, you know, if we're worried about the systemic risk of a run on USDC, we we have a lot bigger problems with the existing existing rails. Uh, the yeah. other, the, yeah, the other thing I just oh, Laura just wanted to know, uh, correcting myself earlier. Our um, coin is is actually an interval fund, not a money market fund, but its oh. valuation holdings is very similar to a money market fund. So just wanted to correct that.
0: Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, um, going back to Collins's point about the dollar. Um, so a couple of things. I don't know if you guys saw, but. Sam Bankman Fried of FTX did write a long Twitter thread about this and was saying that the fact that the US dollar um, is how, like, pretty much the vast majority of trading peers around the world um, are traded in crypto, that is to the US's benefit. And um, Chris Giancarlo, the former CFTC chair, um, has said that he thinks um, instead of doing a a CBDC, we should just have multiple competing us dollar stable coins and it just kind of let it be sort of a free market um but the last thing about this i don't know if you guys have been following rohan gray oh.
1: who uh,
0: <laughs> rohan. <laughs> i i know he's a controversial figure in crypto um i i so i don't remember his exact title but it's something like assistant professor of law at i think it's Lamet. it's maybe? Will, willamette,
1: willamette. Uh, yeah willamette.
0: okay yeah and um he said, you know, the, the risk is that the U.S. government then kind of loses control over its money, basically. So, you know, just, just wanted to offer that other perspective. Um, but you guys, we are over time. We have. It, and it's funny because we only really touched on like a few major topics, but there's just so much to discuss here. So it was super fun. I am so glad we pulled this together. And it's amazing how much there was to discuss given that there wasn't any big regulatory <laughs> news this week, but we all know it's coming. So thank you so much for discussing all of this with me. Um, where can people learn more about each of you and your work?
2: Oh, I, I'm on Twitter. Um, that's probably the the best avenue for me, which I, I never thought I'd be saying in my life. Man, it's
0: terrible. And what's your handle? Uh, um,
2: uh, just my name, Collins underscore Belton. Very creative. It's the well known lawyer, creative class.
1: <laughs> yeah, and for me, uh, I've got one of those lucky names where I actually. Typically, I'm able to get the social media uh, uh, user account that just is my last name, and you've got to figure out how to spell it yourself. No, it's X-E-T-H-A-L-I-S on Twitter, and uh, multicoin.capital is our website.
0: Okay, perfect. All right. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you both so much for coming on Unchained.
2: Thank you again, Laura.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Collins and Greg, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.